0: It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornsheen. Well, hello everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornsheen. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I am so excited to have you tuning in again today because we are continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians. Now, we just made it through one verse last week. I know, in the time that we have, there's so much to cover. it's, It's difficult to get through it at any particular time frame of just chapter by chapter. Rather, we're going through this verse by verse. As an expository church at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, that's what you should expect from us because we really like to spend time going through this text verse by verse. So in the brief time that I have with you, let's just continue on in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're picking up in verse 11 here today. Here's what we read, for it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, today, no one knows exactly who Chloe was. She Evidently, she was uh, of a house of perhaps a small group or business leaders that included servants and messengers, those who traveled to Ephesus, perhaps carrying reports of conditions even there of the Corinthian church. But you'll notice that as Paul is rebuking this Corinthian church, and really that's what this letter is all about, that he is setting them straight. We have a church that is straight away from where it's supposed to be how it's supposed to be worshiping, even bringing in some false doctrine and and some unhealthy behaviors taking place. And we're going to go through that uh, of abuses, even of the Lord's Supper and sexual immorality, amongst many other things. So Paul is setting the record straight here. And, and so here he is rebuking them, but he's not protecting the identity of this individual who has told him of some things going on, some contentions going on in this church. Now, that's an unfortunate reality in churches today, is is people are gathered— people make people mistakes. We talked a great deal about that last week as we spent the entire broadcast on one verse talking about gossip and dissension and how these things can divide a church and we are to be united as God's people. So here he is, he's he's laying claim here to the one who has told him of what's going on and and he puts the weight of the, re, the reliability of what he's saying on this testimony. Now we We can only hope or assume that Chloe attempted to address this issue with the brethren. And after failed attempts to see this issue resolved, then she reached out to Paul. That would be how it's instructed to be done in Matthew chapter 18. She would have tried to resolve the matter... And since there was no resolution there, she then reaches out to Paul and and Paul then feels safe in identifying that Chloe's household is the source of the information here, lest this lead to some retaliation or, or create even further division and amplify the problem. Those at Corinth would most likely have taken out their frustrations on her because she's now some kind of informant to Paul about these contentions going on in the church. People have a tendency of doing that. We have a tendency of being angry with the police officer for giving us a speeding ticket rather than accepting responsibility for breaking the speed limit. That's the human nature in us, the sin nature, unfortunately. Here we are, verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We read, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. That's an interesting verse there, especially when you get to that last part of I am of Christ. Let's take this apart here. Paul informs us that the church was picking and choosing preachers based on their personality or even their giftedness. And if we examine this for a moment in the specific personality groups, I think you'll find some interesting facts here. First of all, there's the Paul party. Now, this is those who, well, probably aligned with Paul. I mean, after all, he ministered there for 18 months and they're the charter members of the church, perhaps, the original core group that that really rallied around him as he was laboring to establish that church, perhaps, are even saying to themselves, we'll never have another pastor like Paul, that we need to go back to the good old days. You, you probably have heard some folks talk like that from time to time in the church, especially when a new pastor comes around. Now then, there's the opposing party, the second group that are affiliating or associating with the Apollos party. Now, Apollos was an Alexandrian Jew. He was an eloquent preacher, a skillful defender of the faith, and apparently the second pastor of the Corinthian church. You go to Acts chapter 18 verses 24 to 28 on that. Now, Apollos was mentored and discipled by Paul, but he had a very different personality and style. In fact, Paul was known as a teacher, while Apollos was known as a gifted preacher. There is a difference. And and then you have this group that's aligning with the Peter party. Now, Cephas is is a Hellenized form of the Aramaic Kepa, which is rock and we go to John 1 42 on that and theologians they debate the issue but there isn't solid evidence that Peter even visited Corinth but here his name is thrown around perhaps because he was well known in the Christian circles everywhere since he was one of Christ's three closest companions and and Peter was leading the Apostles uh, even to the even the Jews and many of them would lean to him because he really had a ministry there and and early Christians especially the Jewish Believers uh, would have stood with him greatly, and I suspect the issue at stake here may have been those who were even leaning towards legalism. And if you go to Galatians 2, 11 to 21, we read about a, a heavyweight battle, if you will, between Paul and Peter. Paul had to denounce Peter for this hypocrisy that he was catering to the, the Jewish legalists, and, and of course they resolved that matter, but Peter had somewhat of a reputation, perhaps, of being a champion for the traditionalist and even opposed some of Paul's emphasis on Christian liberty. Now, of course, again, they resolve that. That's what Christian brothers do, especially those who've been specifically called by Jesus Christ to, to champion the cause, to, to give the gospel message, to reach out to the Gentiles and Jews alike. And so we'd expect them to do the mature thing and, and reconcile that issue. And now it's difficult to assess the last party that he addresses here, but he calls it the Christ party. Now, this seems good at an initial glance, being of the Christ party seems like the only group that any of us should ever be a part of. Yet many theologians, they agree that the reason for it's being included here is not due to a commendable behavior. See, there are those who claim to follow Christ and do not follow his commands. You go to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23 on that, and so they elevate themselves over the leadership that Christ has established in the church. They tend to think of themselves as being of Christ while they categorize the rest as not being of Christ. So the only reason for Paul to mention this group in this sentence related to division is possibly due to the arrogance of this group, of those who call themselves, well, we're of the followers of Christ. We're not going to follow any man. So this group apparently professed loyalty to no human leader, but boasted of their allegiance to Christ alone. It, it perhaps they devised their own brand of spiritual elitism that made them no better than the others really when it comes down to it and we see that happening even today uh, many will will profess that they don't follow any man and and God has revealed the revelation of this word to them and and they they spend time in the in the word alone they don't really need anybody else and and this again flies in the face of scripture where we are told to assemble as brethren especially as the days draw closer to the return of Jesus Christ. So let's continue on in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, we might ask the similar questions today. I mean, we could just say, just with names that we know today, is Franklin Graham your creator? Is Chuck Swindoll the one who sanctified you? Did Charles Stanley die for your sins? Was it Calvin or Arminius who who resurrected from the dead for your justification? No, of course not. We should not trust in any man, but in Christ alone— if Christians today, however, place their eyes upon Christ instead of fallible people, there would be a whole lot of Christians filling our churches today. I mean, think about it. Depending on who you read or, or whatever statistic you pick up, there are some 50 to 100 million Christians who don't attend church. They've dropped out of church due to some disappointment or conflict within the church. That's a crying shame. It's a travesty that's rendering the church powerless. Paul spends a great deal of time here in Corinthians that we're going to get to talking about the church being the body of Christ. He alludes to this even in Ephesians chapter 5. So it's not that we're to take our gifts and go home, but rather we apply them to the work within the church. I will tell you that being in a church will refine you. It will sharpen you. When you have to spend time with people. It's going to challenge you a bit. It's going to maybe smooth out some of those rough edges. If you have some social disorders of some sort, maybe you have a hard time talking with people, being around people, even being around people may disagree with you a little bit. Nothing is going to sharpen you like being around other believers in a church. Iron sharpening iron. So we can't exclude ourselves. Rather, we need to be invested in it because we know that God is using us, using it, the church, to strengthen us, to make us better, to sanctify us ultimately as he does his work through the church into the culture today. So so we take ourselves and others so seriously, but we don't take God seriously at all. In fact, we take God lightly. So I would encourage you to, to make a commitment to unite as one mind and one voice in your worship to the King of Kings. Now let's continue on. Verses 14 to 16, we read here, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Now, Crispus was a ruler of the synagogue in which Paul had preached when he first came to Corinth, and we know that from Acts chapter 18, verse 8. And Crispus had was one to the faith specifically through Paul's teaching. Now Gaius may be the same person as Tidiest justice, and this man was a, a Gentile convert. He lived next door to the synagogue and opened his home to the church after the Corinthian, the Christian Corinthian church there. Uh, before they even had a building, as these Christians were gathering there, that the Christians could no longer even meet in the synagogue. Uh, you know this. This uh, is alluded to in Acts chapter eighteen, verse seven, and Romans sixteen twenty three. So the members of Stephanus's family, they were the first converts in the Roman. Roman province of Achaia, and we go to 1 Corinthians 16, 15 on that. So again, as these individuals that he's highlighting here, Paul's deliberately, he says, did not baptize many of the converts aside from these, so that there would be no question as to whose disciples they were. They were Christ's, okay? They're serving Christ, not Paul. Now, now while the supporting of this work, while Paul is doing this great work that God has called him to there, he's also reinforcing the leadership that's there. He doesn't want them to be followers of him or or, or Crispus or Sosthenes or anybody else. He wants them to be supporters of their of the great work that God is doing there in His church, and following these leaders, respecting the leadership that God has established, but understanding that it's still Christ's church at the end of the day, and that each individual whom God has appointed and raised up is for a purpose and a mission assignment. If they're looking to follow the individual, chances are the individual is going to fail in some way. They're going to fall short of the measure that they have established. So if they're always keeping their eyes on Jesus, following the leadership that God has established, they'll understand Understand as a mature believer that God is doing the greater work, even raising up fallible men to do his great work. And that includes women as well. Now now We go on here, we say Paul or Peter, Acts chapter 10, verse 48, and Jesus, John 4, 1 to 2, they seem to have delegated the responsibility of baptism to others. And it's perhaps for the very reason of ensuring that people were not competing over who baptized them such as like uh, the celebrity following that we have today, where we want to be baptized by a bigger name. it may not be something that you've ever thought of, but certainly can happen in various circles today. Paul believed that baptism was important, but it was valid regardless of whoever, whoever administered it. Okay, so so here they were following individuals as opposed to understanding the protocols and why they were doing what they were doing in the first place. Somehow they were looking for the seal from the baptizer as opposed to the seal in the Holy Spirit. Now baptism is very prominent theme throughout this book, and it's mentioned six times here by the Apostle Paul. So we're quick to baptize when this act should be take shouldn't be taken lightly. We we must count the cost of following Jesus, according to Luke 14, 25 to 33. So uh, often we see these sort of large lines of people who are just running up to want to be baptized And quite clearly, we have to understand what this means of taking up our cross to follow Christ, that we understand that we're coming out as a new creation, that we've made a declaration before man and heaven, that we follow Jesus Christ and we are to receive then the Holy Spirit, that we are now a temple of the Holy Spirit and therefore should walk accordingly. This is a huge declaration that shouldn't be taken lightly. And Paul certainly understands that. So he wants all the eyes taken off of the baptizer and on the purpose of why we're being baptized. Now, he says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Now, Paul's mission was evangelism and raising up churches and church leaders. Baptism is important, but he understood his role and the role of the local leadership and knew how to elevate others, and more importantly, how to elevate the person and work of Christ. So as we look at this, we have to be reminded that disunity causes the greatest threat to the survival of the church. If you're prone to gossip, and tend to leave some kind of wake of division behind you. You have to strive now to become part of the solution and not the problem. Everything we do is about Christ Jesus. And if we take our eyes off that important reality, then we lose sight of our mission and failure is not an option. So let's continue on here in verse 18. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, that's quite the thematic statement to make there. There are only two categories of people, the perishing and the saved. Those who are perishing consider the message of the cross as foolishness. And five times in eight verses, Paul will use the form of the word foolishness. And it's interesting here because... The noun for this word appears only in the New Testament once here in 1 Corinthians 1.18, 21.23, 2.14, and 3.19. It's only here in this section. So not just one time being used, but only in this particular section of the noun form of this, of foolishness, okay, not as an adjective. In verse 125, it appears as an adjective, and that occurs in Paul's letter only in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five and 27, chapter 3, verse 18 and 4.10, but it occurs 36 times in the Septuagint. So I probably don't have to tell you that when we get the English word moron comes from this particular Greek word, okay? So the idea of something that is ridiculous, ignorant, stupid, or contemptible comes from this root word that's used as both an adjective and a noun. Now, if someone were to say to you, you moron, you'd be insulted, and rightfully so. But that's the very word that Paul is using here, and not just once, but five times. So though the world mocks the cross— Paul is turning the tables on this perspective with the same adjective implied on those who disdain the wisdom of the gospel. Now, there are countless of reasons for why people resist the message of the cross. But to top the list, it's because the cross offends their pride. You see, the message of the cross is that salvation is freely granted by God's grace, not human merit or intellect. And salvation is extended to all people. That means it levels the ground at the foot of the cross. And everyone who comes to God through faith, based on the work of Jesus Christ, that offends man's pride. This is why Christ would ultimately be rejected by men in Isaiah 53.3. So let me explain. The gods of men are conquerors. They're filled with pride and evoking fear within their enemies. They're often very powerful, commanding the elements, and even commanding men to do their bidding. It isn't this like how we, I don't know, maybe we look at our superheroes kind of like that. I mean, we look at all these superhero movies today, and they're powerful, and they have mighty feats and unbelievable gifts and and abilities, And we seem to be drawn to that. We're drawn to the strength because it makes us feel strong. And so while the cross was the ultimate display of strength— beyond all human comprehension from a God who took on flesh and could have called down 12 legions of angels to strike down all who would have dared laid a finger on the Son of the living God, according to Matthew 26, 53, we have to understand that the world won't be able to fathom the power that was under total control by one who was willing to die that we might live. So it's the opposite of our nature. We elevate superheroes. We elevate gods and deities and all these figures throughout all of time and Greek mythology and so forth because of these various gifts and powers, even though they often look down on men, stomped on men. There was no love for man. It was what man could do for them. And, and yet we see the opposite revealed in Jesus Christ, that, that he would take the ultimate price for us, a, a self-sacrificing, agape kind of love, agape that... We don't fully understand in humanity. We can't understand 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love without the Holy Spirit. We can't possibly love like that in the flesh. That's a love that comes only from Almighty God. So even Jesus' own followers expected him to bring the Roman Empire to an end, and that Israel's rule would be reestablished on the earth. They didn't realize that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 had just been fulfilled right before their eyes, and his reign was not yet to come, that his reign was still forthcoming. He was fulfilling prophecy, over 300 prophecies all fulfilled in that moment. That was the mission that we might have hope, a life beyond this one that we would live forever with him there was a greater mission to be accomplished there so while the unbeliever considers the Christ uh, this cross as utter nonsense the christian sees it as the power of god unleashed something far different for the christian mindset than the world it is beyond what the world can understand and it seems like utter foolishness that this, this God would come and die for us. So it, it's the power of God revealed. In other words, our victory and salvation and life can only be attained by way of the cross. And the cross is everything to the Christian. John Stott, he shares this brilliant thought. Uh, let me just read this to you. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back-lacerated limbs, wrenched, brow bleeding with thorn pricks, mouth dry with intolerable thirst, plunged in God's forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He set aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh, blood, tears, and death. And, and these words then provide one of the best arguments for both the existence of God and the power of the cross. And I believe that John Stott was influenced by the very words that were spoken by the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 to 18 and 4.15. Let me read those to you. He says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom all things, and by whom all things, in bringing many "...many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Inasmuch Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same." "...that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful." and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who is in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin." So this is, we're just getting going here. I mean, this is this is awesome. I hope you've been encouraged already by what we've read. We still have more to cover. We still have 1 Corinthians 19 all the way through the rest of chapter one to cover here. And I hope you would come back next week to tune in. Again, I want to thank you for listening to Engage in Truth. And I want to encourage you that if you are looking for a fellowship of believers to go deep into the word of God with, then you have found the place to, that I believe that God wants you to be at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. Uh, Go to calvaryfountain.com to learn more. Services are at 10 a.m. on Sundays, and we have small groups throughout the whole week. We would love to worship with you. We'd love to go through the Bible with you, to equip you with God's Word as we are told to do in Ephesians chapter 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I hope you've been encouraged listening to Engage in Truth. Again, tune in next week. You can re-listen to this broadcast and find the video messages. Learn more at calvaryfountain.com. God bless you.